0: Welcome. Mark chapter eight is where we're gonna be this morning. Mark chapter eight. If you are using one of our Bibles, it'll be found on page 705. Mark chapter eight, you can go ahead and turn there, page 705 if you're using one of our Bibles. Hey, I wanna take a moment before we dive in uh, together and just say thank you for your generosity last week. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we left in the middle of the worship gathering. Uh, we left here and we went to Kroger and we celebrated what God has done for us. He's been generous to us so we in turn say, hey, we wanna be generous to others. So we left here in the middle of the worship gathering, we went to Kroger, you all bought over 140 boxes. That's what it ended up being, 140 boxes worth of groceries that we were able to deliver. Yeah, I didn't know you were gonna celebrate that or I will paused. Hey, we, we bought over 140 boxes worth of food. Yeah. yeah, awesome. And it's really amazing. I got to be a part of the team that went over and delivered the groceries to the little pantry, and they were just so thankful. They're like, make sure you tell your church just how Um, how thankful we are, and just the good that this is gonna do here in the North Nashville uh, community. And the cool thing is, is you can actually volunteer to serve with the Little Pantry where we gave the food. Uh, They're connected with Hands on Nashville. So Hands on Nashville, they they take a lot of organizations and allow you to serve um, with organizations here in Nashville. So if you wanna be a part of actually distributing that food and not just giving to the Little Pantry, but be a part of of distributing, every Saturday from nine uh, to one, uh, each each person that comes that's in need of groceries actually personally shops with someone else and they get to choose the food uh, that they get. And so they need a lot of volunteers because there's about 200 or so families each Saturday that come, uh, that go through that process. And so uh, they need uh, volunteers to come on Saturdays um, and help with that process. So if you wanna kinda continue what we gave towards, uh, HON.org, which stands for Hands On Nashville.org, you can hop online and sign up uh, there. She wanted me to express that we are so welcome and she wants us to serve in other ways um, as well, but we're going to dive into to Mark chapter eight uh, this morning. I'm excited. It's a it's a really um, really one of those uh, tough kind of difficult texts. It's not one of those you open up and you're like, yes, Jesus, I, I, I want more of that. You're like, oh, did you really? Do you really have to say that? That's, 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 what, that's what I've been wrestling with um, this week. But I want to kind of start by asking a question before we dive, dive into the text this morning. And then the question is, have you ever had a moment in your life, um, have you ever had a time in your life where you had a plan, you had a picture of how things were going to be, and it just, without a shadow of a doubt, was going to turn out that way? You know, you kind of had this plan for how things were gonna go. You had this plan for how things were gonna turn out and you just knew, you just knew like this, this is how it's gonna be. Maybe you were in high school, you're graduating and you knew, hey, this is the college I'm gonna go to. This is the degree I'm gonna get. This is the job that I'm going to get when I graduate from college. We know how that turns out, don't we? Maybe you were in high school and your high school girlfriend, I mean, she was the one, like no doubt about it, she was the one you were gonna marry. I mean, you're 16 years old, so you know everything, and you know how the picture and the plan is, is gonna go. Or maybe you were a young parent, and you, you knew, if, okay, if, if I raise my kids a certain way, um, if I teach them these things, this is gonna be how it turns out. This is gonna be who they're gonna become. This is gonna be the kind of spouse they're gonna find. This is gonna be how many grandkids I'm gonna have. You know, you had this plan, you had this picture. Maybe for the first time this year you decided, hey, I'm gonna plant a garden. I've seen, I've seen all of these Instagram pictures of these beautiful raised beds with like the chicken coop in the background, You know, kind of a little bit blurry and you think, okay, listen, I can be a homesteader too. Like I can be Chip and Joanna Gaines, it's no big deal. So you plant the garden, you know how it's gonna turn out, right? Beautiful Garden of Eden type thing is gonna spring up from your backyard. Last Kila, last fall, not last Kila, there's only one Kila, that's my <laughs> wife. Last fall, Kila and I and Ike uh, took a trip uh, to Birmingham to meet my parents. So my dad grew up in Birmingham. He's a big Alabama fan. He raised me to be a winner as well. And so I'm an Alabama fan too. No offense, but sorry to you Vols fans out there. Um, so once a year, we meet up and we go to one, one, one game a year in Tuscaloosa or a visiting stadium. And so we have Ike now, which kind of, you know, complicates the situation a little bit. So we said, hey, why don't we make a weekend out of it? We'll meet y'all in Birmingham. Uh, Keela and my mom and Ike we're gonna hang out uh, while we went to the game. And so I said, okay, that sounds great. Um, instead of getting two separate hotel rooms, why don't we just find an Airbnb in Birmingham? That way we're all under the same roof. Y'all can hang out while we go to the game. It's gonna be great. Well, if you don't know anything about football in Alabama, like people take football very seriously, and so the Airbnb options in Birmingham the weekend of a game were few and far between. Well, a couple of weeks out, uh, this new listing pops up. Pictures look pretty good. I'm like, that's great, let's book it. Hey, Mom and Dad, I've found a place. We'll just meet y'all there in Birmingham. We're about 25 minutes from arriving. My parents had gotten to the Airbnb uh, before we did, and my mom calls me, and she's like, Hey Andrew um where did you find this place again and i'm like airbnb well, what's what's the big deal? I, I looked pretty good on the pictures, and she starts describing to me like where they are and I'm like, no, 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 you must have the wrong address like clearly based upon the listing like i i, I I know what we're getting ourselves into. Well, she's, she's like, I'm in the kitchen and the, the, the floors are actually wet. They're kind of squishy, like everywhere I walk. I'm like, okay, that's, that's not good. And she's like, hey, in one of the bedrooms, uh, like there's some evidence that maybe a mouse probably did or still lives here. Uh, there was some mouse droppings. and I'm like, really? And then all of a sudden she screams like, ah, on the phone. And I'm like, I've gotten my parents killed. Like I, I sent them to this air, sketchy Airbnb and I've got my parents killed. They, don't worry, like they're okay, but a roach had crawled in front of her while she was on the phone with me, and I'm like, okie dokie, well, what are we going to do? Well, we end up having to book two really expensive hotel rooms, and I mean, when I say expensive, I mean really expensive hotel rooms, uh, and me and my dad have to go to the game and drive back that night because we could only book one night, only afford one night for the hotel room, but When I booked this Airbnb, I'm telling you, like, I knew how the weekend was gonna turn out. Like, the the pictures, the plans we had made, I mean, they were were perfect. And and things always turn out like you think they're going to, don't you? I just knew how they were gonna turn out. And we do this all the time, right? I don't know if you do this. you, You make plans. You have an idea of how things are gonna be, how things are gonna turn out. Some of these are lighthearted. Some of these are a little more serious. We have an idea of how things are supposed to be. We have an idea of uh, what our life is gonna look like, how everything's gonna play out, every step along the way. And I think we do this in our walk with Jesus as well. We know exactly what the spiritual journey is gonna look like. We know exactly when we're going to arrive. And we come to one of these moments here in Mark chapter eight where the disciples, they have this idea of who Jesus is, what he's gonna be like. And they come to this moment where they realize, oh, okay, the picture and the plan that we had for how things were gonna be aren't exactly lined up with how Jesus says they are. Now, to really quickly catch us up, because we haven't been in the book of Mark, like up to this point in Mark chapter eight, Jesus is in the middle of his earthly ministry and things are going really well. Like, if you wanna be a part of something, this is what you wanna be a part of. I mean, he's, he's performing miracles. I mean, just epic miracles. He's feeding 5,000 plus men, women and children with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He's healing the blind. He's raising the dead and the disciples are like, yes, this is what we wanna be a part of. He's preaching these epic sermons I mean, crowds and crowds and crowds of people are gathering, and the crowds are growing. The crowds are getting bigger. And the disciples, they think to them, this is what we signed up for. This is why we wanted to follow the Messiah. This is why we signed up to follow the Christ. And now we pick up in Mark chapter eight. This is where we find ourselves in the story with the disciples and Jesus. Verse 27, verse 27 It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, okay, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered for the rest of the disciples. He says, you're the Messiah. Now, Jesus, he warned them not to tell anyone about him. So he confirms that it's true, but he says, hey, people aren't ready yet. And then he began to teach them, continuing verse 31, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He just laid it out there for him. This is what's gonna happen and this is how it's gonna happen. Continuing in verse 32, it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Verse 34, and this kind of the last section we'll read, then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory and the holy angels. Welcome to church, ladies and gentlemen, right? It's a real morale booster right there. We're in the middle of a series that we have entitled uh, Rooted, and uh, we're uncovering and beginning to discover, okay, this is what it looks like for us to live deeply, to live with purpose in the midst of a hurried and changing world around us. And we're looking each week, okay, what does it mean for us to be rooted in Jesus, So that when the hurried and the rapidly changing world around us is trying to kind of push us this way and blow us that way, we are able to stand firm. We are able to stand firm in the peace and the power and the life that comes in the person of Jesus. We are able to remain joyful. We're able to remain hopeful and peaceful because the source of our hope the source of our joy, the source of our peace, goes so much deeper than than the circumstances of our life. And we're asking that question again today. Okay, how do we root our lives in Jesus? What, What does this look like? How do we live deeply? How do we live with meaning and with purpose in a way that will leave us unshaken when the rest of the world around us seems to be shaking uncontrollably? And Jesus, he's gonna answer that question for us once again this morning, but he's, he's gonna answer that question in a way that you might not expect. He's gonna answer that question, I think, in a way the disciples had not planned on him saying. And I think this morning, in some ways, maybe we don't anticipate him saying either. Jesus is gonna say, he's like, okay, you want this good life? You want a life that's deeply rooted in me? You you wanna save your life? Well, what I'm gonna invite you to do is actually surrender your life. I'm gonna invite you to surrender all of who you are over to me. Say, okay, you want a life that's deeply rooted in me? You're gonna have a life that's deeply rooted in the act of surrender. Surrender is actually gonna be the path to victory. Surrender is actually gonna be the path to joy, to peace, to hope that will not shake when the, when the world is shaking around you. And you're not gonna have it just now. You're not gonna have this temporarily. You're gonna have this forever. And in verse 35, Jesus, he kind of gives us this paradoxical statement. You may have heard this statement before. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the sake of the gospel will save it. Now, this came after Jesus uh, for the first time ever uh, telling the disciples the plan in Mark. So he he lets them in on, he tells us, he says it plainly. He says, hey, I'm actually, I'm headed to the cross. That's the direction that I'm headed. That's the path that I'm gonna take. And the disciples are like, wait a second, Jesus. Like, this isn't all what we had pictured. This isn't at all what we had planned for. This did not fit that did not fit into their picture and their plans that they had made when the Messiah would show up. When when the one came that they were gonna follow, this is not at all how they thought it would go. Let's jump back to verse 29 because Jesus, he he asked the disciples the all-important question. Verse 29, okay, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, he speaks up, like he so often does for the rest of the disciples, and he says, you're the Messiah. And this is an important moment on the disciples' journey here in the Gospel of Mark because they see Jesus for the first time who Jesus really is. They see Jesus clearly for the first time. And in the, in the original language, this would have been translated, you are the Messiah, to you are the Christ which would have been interpreted you are the anointed one. The anointed one. We're not talking about a Messiah right here. We're talking about the Messiah. Peter's saying, you're not a king. He's proclaiming, hey, this is the king of all kings. The true king, the the king who's gonna make everything right in the world. He's saying, you're the one, Jesus. You're the one that's gonna restore all things back to how they were supposed to be. You're the one that's gonna bring light into the darkness. You're you're gonna be the one that restores the broken. You're gonna be the one that sets the oppressed free. You're gonna bring justice to all the injustices. You're the one, Jesus, that's gonna do that. You're the anointed one. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, He says, You're right. Only to turn around and say something totally shocking and appalling. Jesus says, you're right, you're right. I am the king. I am the Messiah. And I'm gonna do all of those things. I'm gonna defeat all evil, but I'm gonna do it in a way that none of you are expecting me to do it. He says, hey, I'm actually gonna have to suffer. I'm actually gonna have to be rejected. And ultimately, I'm, I'm gonna die in order to be able to raise three days later. He says, okay, because of who I am, you're right, that's who I am, but because of who I am, there is something that I must do. And at this moment, Jesus, he is bringing together two ideas that have never been brought together in the history of the world. Never before had anyone in Israel or the people of God connected surrender and suffering with the Messiah. These two things did not go together. There's places in the Old Testament, like in the... Book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, 44, and 53, where it talks about this mysterious servant of the Lord suffering. Now, we, we know how to put the text in Isaiah in context to the greater story of what God is doing through Jesus. But nobody before Jesus had ever connected this text to the Messiah, to the one that was coming. The idea that the Messiah could suffer, this incredible divine figure could suffer, it just makes no sense to them at all. This Messiah was supposed to come and make everything right in the world, defeat all evil, defeat all injustice. How in the world could he possibly defeat all evil by being killed? It's ridiculous. It's impossible, they think. And that's the reason that Peter responds the way he does. Peter responds the way he does because of the plan that Jesus lays out. Peter did not like the plan one bit. Peter did not like the path that Jesus was getting ready to take. And in fact, it says that Peter rebuked Jesus. It says he rebukes Jesus. Now, this is the same word rebuke here that they use for what Jesus did to the demons. Like when it says that Jesus would rebuke a demon, like that's that's the word here that, that Peter's Peter's using. He's he's condemning Jesus in the strongest possible language. That's how much he did not like the plan that Jesus had just laid out. Now it's easy for us to think, like, Peter, what are you doing? This is God Himself in the flesh. Like, why why in the world are you rebuking him? But you have to understand, I mean, Peter is really, really freaked out by what Jesus is saying. He's been told from a very young age, from a very young age, hey, the Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna go to Jerusalem and he's gonna defeat all evil in the world, but he's gonna do it by going to a throne. That's the plan that Peter had pictured. And Jesus, he's telling us here, he's telling the disciples, he said, yes, I'm the Messiah. And I am the king that you have been waiting on. And I am going to defeat all evil. That day is coming. But I'm not gonna do it by going to a throne. I'm gonna do it by going to a cross. And what Jesus says in verse 31, he says, hey, I haven't come to die. He says, I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world cannot be changed. Your life cannot be renewed. Your life cannot be redeemed. And you can't have the hope, you can't have the peace, you can't have the joy that I long for you to have unless I take this path. And because of that, Jesus actually turns back to Peter and rebukes him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Because he knows that's what Satan would want him to do says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God and the ways of God, you're setting your mind on the things and the ways of man. Peter's plan contradicted with God's. Peter had this man-centered view of things, right? He was simply thinking in terms of what he believed, what he had dreamed of, And somehow the Messiah was supposed to fit within his plans, within his box, and the way that he thought things were supposed to go. This picture and this plan that Jesus gives the disciples is not what they had in their mind. They imagined Jesus sitting on a throne, right? Not dying on a cross. This wasn't supposed to be the way it went. This did not line up with what they wanted Jesus to do. They're thinking this is, okay, how could victory come from a posture, an act of total surrender? This sounds like a really poor strategy. And even to us, I think it sounds like a really poor strategy, right? Peter and the disciples are thinking, okay, you mean to tell me like this is the plan? This is the mission statement? Deny yourself. Take up your cross, lose your life. That's the message that you want us to proclaim to people. They're like, Jesus, you have brought us here to help people follow you, and this, I don't think, is gonna work out too well. They're like, we're not marketing strategists or anything like that, but Jesus, the plan that you're laying out, I don't think is gonna go the way you want it to. Whatever you're doing, Jesus, I don't think this is gonna work. He says, it's gonna work. It's just not going to work like you thought it was. He says, Deny yourself. Embrace your cross. Follow me. And, and this, man, this really just flies in the face of the Christian message that, that I think I want to cling to and hold on to so often. Where Jesus is just kind of something I add to my life, where, where Jesus is someone who helps me do what I want to do. When, when my dreams are at stake, when my ambitions have kind of hit a roadblock, I invite Jesus in to come and fix the situation. You ask Jesus, hey, you're gonna be on my team, right? You're gonna be on my team, right? And this, this, is, this is not the life that Jesus is describing here. This is not the life that Jesus has, hey, a life rooted in me, This is is what it's gonna look like. It's gonna be better than you ever thought it could be. I know where we're going, but this is what a life rooted in me is gonna look like. It's a life rooted in surrender. It's a life that's rooted in self-denial, not self-gratification. It's a life that's rooted in embracing your crosses, not avoiding the crosses that come your way. It's a life that is following me every step of the way, no matter where those steps take you, even if it wasn't a part of your plans. It's a life rooted in complete and total surrender. So Jesus, he uses these conversations as they've been building, like he so just beautifully does so often. He asks questions, he gets a response and he says, okay, He's gonna teach us here in this moment, hey, this is what it looks like to surrender your life to me. Verse 34, it says, then he called to the crowd to come along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, before we kind of talk about, okay, what it looks like to deny ourselves, embrace our cross, and follow him, did you notice that that first word he uses? He says, whoever, whoever. Jesus says, because of what I'm going to accomplish on the cross, and because of the fact I'm gonna raise three days later, this invitation is open to anybody. This invitation is not closed off. That's why he gathers the entire crowd. He doesn't just gather the disciples. Did you notice that? He takes this conversation with the disciple and he says, okay, I wanna bring everybody in on this. I want everybody to hear this. Whoever, whoever, it does not matter your story. It does not matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you think you are. Because of what I am going to do, this invitation is open to everybody. And then Jesus begins to teach them. He says, okay, this is what it looks like to to surrender. First thing, he says, deny yourself. It's like, Really, Jesus, you gotta start with an easy one like self denial. I mean, come on. Really lob us up a softball. If I'm being really honest, like this is one of the hardest things for for me personally to do. I mean, just ask Keila about my relationship with ice cream. Like, self denial is not something that I, I live into every night, y'all. It's an issue, seriously. Almost every night, six out of seven. Ike is two years old, and, and he already lives like this. Like, he's the king of his little life and his little world. And I'm pretty sure, like, we haven't taught him this. We haven't said, you're the king. In fact, we said, Jesus is the king, and yet there's, there's, there's something that's in him. There's something that's naturally within him because of the fall that puts him on the throne of his own heart, right? But it's not just him. Like, I just know how to hide it a little bit better than he does at this point, where it's like this, like that, yada yada yada. He wants to do everything his way, everything his way by himself. And I've just figured out ways to hide it a little bit better than he has. So it's this natural inclination we have to to, to be the king of our own lives, to sit on the throne of our own hearts. But it's not just the natural inclination. It's everything else around us. So you don't only have the fall working against you, you have all these voices around you as well telling you, hey, you are the most important person. The very culture we're swimming in. Everything in our lives is teaching us the way of self fulfillment and self gratification, not the way of self denial. I mean, you're hungry, eat. You're tired, sleep. You've got a craving, satisfy that craving. Everything around us tells us that our lives are about self, self self-fulfillment, self-gratification. I mean, think about your phones. There is literally a camera on your phone now that's oriented to self. I feel like I talk about phones every single week. I've got some personal stuff to work through there. But think about the fact that your camera, literally on your phone, is oriented to take a selfie. And the fact that selfie is a universally accepted phrase now. Like We may live in the most self-gratifying generation that ever existed. And so everything is telling you to look within, satisfy self. Every culture kind of points to certain things and says, okay, if you gain those, if you acquire those, if you get those, then you will be self-fulfilled, right? Every, every kind of culture and facets of culture has them. So some of you may feel this narrative right now, culture saying, okay, hey, you just have to get a family. If you get a family, if you get a spouse, and then not just a family, but this beautiful, well put together, perfect family. Once you acquire this, then, then you will be fulfilled. Then you will find joy. Then you will find happiness. Some of you feel culture telling you, hey, you have to find the career, you have to find that fulfilling, that satisfying, successful career. And with that career is gonna come money, it's gonna come status, it's gonna come things, things that come along with it that are, that are gonna give you joy, that are gonna give you peace. And culture's saying, hey, here it is, here it is, go after it. And so often we do. Our culture says, hey, be true to yourself. You are supreme, your happiness, your pleasure, your desire trumps all. Here's the thing, when we live like this, we become our own gods. Here's the problem with that, we're not God. And in fact, we make really terrible gods because our view of how the plan should go and what life will look like and where we will find joy, is so, so terribly warped by the sin within us and around us. And Jesus, by both his example and his words, he reminds us, hey, as true as this may feel, like as as true of a narrative as this feels and as, as many times as you play into this narrative over here that culture's telling you, as sure of a path, this seems to joy and hope, it will always leave you wanting more. And Jesus, He's gonna flip things right on its head and He says, like He so often does, He says, actually, you can have that life. But what you're gonna do to find it is actually, you're gonna deny yourself. The only thing that can give you the lasting peace, the only thing that can give you the lasting joy that you're you're made for, that you're longing for, is me. It's me. You will never be truly satisfied and have the deep roots that you want outside of God and God himself. All the money, all the relationships, all the pleasure, all the security the world has to offer These things in and of themselves are not bad. But they won't last. They won't last. And they will not satisfy. I can talk about Brandon and Courtney because they're not here this morning. Um, They're they're away uh, at the beach. For for the first time as a family of five, they're away. Um, I know it's hard to believe. And so if you think about them this week, Pray for them, that they feel rest, rejuvenated, that God just speaks and move um, while they're away as a family. That's a side note. But anyway, almost every, every Sunday, Courtney and her three kids, Brandon's here early. Um, and so Courtney with her three kids ha- leaves their house a little bit earlier uh, than, than they normally do because she drives from Mount Juliet all the way over to uh, the Edge Hill community, kind of a low-income area uh, in, in Nashville when she picks up, depending upon the day, uh, between three and five kids each, each Sunday. And from the outside looking in, like, I lo- I've thought about it so many times, I'm like, Courtney, like, what, what in you, like, has decided to do that? You're already riding solo on Sundays. You already have three kids, which I don't know how you do that. And then you drive out of your way on a Sunday morning, and she arrives on time, and I'm like, like, what, what controls you to do that, Courtney? And she, she has seen a clear picture of Jesus for who he really is. And she knows that self-denial is not this call that Jesus is forcing down upon us. It's this invitation to find life, the life that he came to give. Come on, Brad, let's go, man. Jesus says, hey, if you wanna find the life that I've come for you to have, the good life, you have to forget yourself. Amen, the trains. Let's go, y'all. <laughs> he says, lose sight of yourself. Man, it's hard though, isn't it? When you surrender your life to Jesus, when you surrender your life to Christ, when you become his follower, your life is no longer centered around your personal dreams, ambitions, goals, desires, but it's centered around Jesus. Jesus you are no longer the king of your life. Jesus is the king of your life. But you see, Jesus is so different than any other king. And I think that's why Peter and us have such a hard time understanding what's happening here. This isn't some heavy-handed mandate. This isn't a bunch of religious hoops to jump through. It's the response of someone who has encountered the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's the response of someone who's encountered the goodness of God. It's the response of someone who has seen Jesus clearly for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, not just for Peter and the disciples, but for whoever would choose to follow him. It's with this clear picture of Jesus that we can step into a life of surrender, of denying self, of embracing, embracing crosses. It's kind of the second part here. He says, okay, I want you to embrace the crosses that come your way. Now we're a little removed from the context of this, right? They, they were not, they, they knew what a cross meant. They had seen it. It was the most cruel form of punishment that man could come up with at that time. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, and the reality is, that is I think true for me and I think true for most of us, is we avoid suffering as much as we possibly can, much less embrace it when it comes our way. I think I spend a lot of my life avoiding every possible area of suffering. Now, now we have to be careful here. Jesus is not telling us, hey, go search out pain, go search out Persecution, go search out suffering. that's, That's not what Jesus is saying. The idea here is not that Christians would pursue suffering. We are after Jesus, not persecution. The idea here is that when and if it comes your way, you have to be willing to embrace it. You have to be willing to react to it differently because of who I am in you and who you will be to those around you when it happens. It's kind of hard to quantify this in in our own context. And I wanna make sure I make that point really clear. This is not like the the reverse of health and wealth gospel. This is not, hey, search out pain, search out hurting in order to to make your way to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying here at all. He's saying, when you follow me, these things are gonna come your way and this is how I want you to walk in it. But this idea of embracing the crosses that come our way, it's a little bit bit foreign to us, but we see it, we see it. You've probably seen it in the people around you. You see it in the stories around you. I I don't know how many of you know Josh and Jenny Stites. They were a part of our church family here at Ethos um, before they moved to Cookville. And Josh and Jenny, they're just amazing family, amazing people, just love the Lord. Their lives are just marked by the just love of Jesus. Well, their oldest son, Jack, um, was born prematurely. I think at about 25, 26 weeks. I don't know if anybody here can remember exactly when it was. Uh, he was born prematurely. And I can remember just not being able to fathom like, what, what it was that they were going through. Now, now Josh and Jenny, I mean, they, they were amazing before. They were amazing before this happened. But, but as they begin to walk through something that, that no one would ever ask for, that, that no one would ever look for, you began to understand the depth of Jesus within them. But it wasn't just the people who knew him, it wasn't just our church family who got to see Jesus in them, it was the doctors, it was the nurses, it was the families that were also patients, right? right beside them. As they embrace this cross of pain and doubt and fear, Jesus was formed in them in ways it wouldn't have and was on display around them in ways it wouldn't have been unless they embraced that cross like they did. It's a miracle. Jack is alive and he's doing really, really well. But Jesus' final instructions, it's not hey, go and look for these things. It's follow me, follow me. And that's always the invitation, right? We don't have to worry about the first two if we are actually living into the third. As we follow Jesus, there are going to be opportunities to deny yourself. There will be crosses that that need to be embraced. But we aren't doing it alone if we are following him. That's the thing about following someone. Think about that imagery that Jesus uses here. When we're following someone, we're, we're with someone, right? Every step of the way. It's only when we take our eyes off of the one that we're following that we look up and we realize that we're alone. And Jesus, just in his kindness, as we follow him, as we take missteps and step back on the path, he is always there. He is always faithful. And he is always willing to walk with you every step of the way, no matter where you find yourself on your journey with him. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we look to him, he will be with us every step of the way. He tells us, hey, I'm not gonna leave you. I'm not gonna forsake you. He says, you wanna find life. You want want a life that is rooted in me. You want a life that is rooted in such a way that will be firm when the world around you isn't. You wanna have a life that's so deeply rooted in me, you will find joy, you will find peace, no matter what comes your way. Okay, you're gonna need to have this posture of surrender." You want to find life? Deny yourself. The life I have for you is so much better than the plan you have for yourself. It's with a clear picture of Jesus that any of this is possible. We, we look to Jesus, the one who's gone before us, right? let that's the amazing thing about following Jesus is he's not gonna invite us into anything or anywhere that he hasn't done himself or he hasn't gone himself. And So each week that we gather, we go to the table. And we go to the table and it's this, it's this act, it's this posture of surrender where we say, Jesus, okay, the plans that we have, the picture that we have isn't quite going like I thought it would. Life is not turning out like I thought it would. Jesus that's okay. That's okay. I'm with you every step of the way. All you have to do is surrender your plan. All you have to do is surrender your ways. My ways are higher. My ways are better. And the thing that I just so desperately want for myself and I want for you, we really don't have to worry about any of this, denying ourselves, embracing our cross, like we, we are gonna do that with grace if our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we have a clear picture of who he really is and what he has really done for each and every one of us. Everything else is gonna take care of itself, both now and for eternity. If we have a clear picture of Jesus, who he is and what he has done, So that's how we're gonna spend the rest of our time this morning. We're gonna pray a very simple prayer. Jesus, will you give us a clearer picture of who you are? You can throw that slide up on the screen. Jesus, will you give us a more clear picture of who you are? I'm gonna pray over us and then we're gonna head to the table together. Father, we are just so thankful that that you're not inviting us into anything that you're not giving a posture that's of surrender that isn't anything but good cuz you know <laughs> you know you know how this ends you know and you you see us grasping and holding on to all the things that we think are going to give us joy and meaning in life. and life. You say, if, if you let go of those things, if you let go of those things, you're going to find a life that is going to be so much better than the plan and the picture of life that you had for yourself. But God, I, I, I know I, this is hard for me. Um, this is, this is difficult for me. So, I imagine it's probably difficult for a lot of other people here this morning. And I know the times that I get so self focused and self centered, it's, it's when I've lost sight of you, Jesus. It's when I've lost sight of your ways and your will and the life that you have died for me to live. And so, Jesus, in all of your goodness and all of your grace, in all of your kindness, I just ask, will you, will you give us a clear picture of who you are and what you have done and what you accomplished for us on the cross in the empty tomb? And may that be the thing that propels us. May that be the thing that sends us into a life that looks so different from the lives of those around us and calls people into that same life that you have laid out for us to take. So Jesus, it's in your name that we pray and together as a whole church we say amen.